Now, once again, our normal custom here is to preach uh, expositorily, walking through various passages, emphasizing what God emphasizes as a general rule. We do believe that's the best way to go about teaching through the scriptures. Uh, but we are taking a, a short hiatus from that. Sometimes a topical emphasis is uh, very, very helpful. And at the commencement of this new year, we're a little late. We're still commencing the year, I guess, around here. It's turned into a rather lengthy series on the vital subject of apostasy. And trust me, I'm well aware of how unpopular this topic is. You know, when I'm wrestling with what to feed the Lord's people, do you know what questions don't cross my mind? What will be most popular? What will make everybody feel most fuzzy? What will be the most positive? Uh, what will win me influence in the local circle of various ministerial associations? Because really the central question isn't any of those things. It's what does God want His people to know? What does His Word say? And if you're familiar with biblical history, you know that truth has never been in the majority, even among God's professing people. And apostasy is, again, one of the most prolifically mentioned topics in the entirety of the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And so we don't have the liberty to just ignore it. There's a lot of ink that the Holy Spirit spills to make us aware of this with very, very good reason. It's like a doctor goes to medical school, and what is a lot of his learning center around? The ugliness of disease. How disastrous it is when it crosses human life, and what to do about it, both preventatively and treatment-wise. Apostasy, of course, speaks not of the world, but a massive growing departure, progressive in nature, that as the church age uh, pushes on towards the end, we don't know when Jesus is coming back precisely, but one of the signs given to the church is the explosion of uh, wide numbers of people that profess to know Jesus Christ with their lips and deny Him by their life. We see simultaneously, and really the impetus behind that is legions of false teachers that the New Testament warns us about. Men who are very persuasive, men who are intellectual, men who have charismatic personalities, men who are popular, men who are very good at cloaking their real motives and their real doctrinal position, men who really could care less about the glory of God so much as gaining a following or satisfying the lust of the flesh. And they, of course, will produce legions of followers miles wide and an inch deep who clamor for teachers to tell them exactly what they want to hear who clamor for a redefinition of God, who clamor for a new kind of Jesus to let them live their own wicked carnal life and have just enough religion to claim the title Christian. And of course, the last couple weeks we've been talking about, in light of these warnings and descriptions, what do we do about it? Now, I mentioned the last couple weeks, one conspicuous thing I left out of that was the word separation. 
the body of truth in the New Testament that commands, not suggests, but commands God's faithful people and God's faithful ministers that there are certain influences and movements and teachers and churches God tells them to get away from in no uncertain terms. And so we're going to spend some time covering that. Now, the passage that was just read, we spent a lot of time expositing that. We're not going to do that again. But the reason I had that read is to draw our attention to the last four words of verse 5. After this detailed description of the explosion of end times pseudo-Christianity, Paul commands Timothy. And by obvious extension, because this went far beyond Timothy's time, by extension, any preacher or church or individual believer, he says this, from such turn away. It means to turn your back on something. He's saying any teachers, any movement, any church that is defending or producing this kind of shallow religiosity, don't try to remain within it to reform it. Don't join together with it to harness the supposed power of the majority. Don't fool yourself into thinking that it won't affect you. The apostolic command concerning end times apostasy is to get away from it. And again, there are several reasons for that which are interwoven throughout the Scriptures. One of them is, the more church becomes like the world around them, the more powerless it becomes. Now I know that runs contrary to the so-called church growth gurus. But friends, if we're going to stick with the Scriptures, who is it that is a conduit of spiritual power? It's Him that abides in Christ. And I tell you, there is no abiding in Christ without obeying His commands and walking in fellowship with Him and turning your back on evil and compromise. You cannot fellowship with Him without those. It's not possible. Reason number two is no believer can remain surrounded by apostasy for long without being damaged by it. You see, it doesn't just affect standards and actions, external things. Apostasy affects appetites. It affects discernment. It affects the entire thinking process. Consider some of the words used to describe it. Leaven. How about canker? Paul says of some false teachers that their word will eat as doth a canker. What is a canker? Gangrene. Paul says the words of those guys, if they are left to influence God's people, and if God's people keep listening to them, it will spread in their spiritual life like gangrene. Reason number three, because of the inevitable effect on future generations. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder, honestly, sitting there this morning, how many of you actually care about the churches that will be around 50 years from now if Christ hasn't come back? How many of you care about that? 
How many of you can say, if you have children or grandchildren, I don't just want to be in a solid church myself. I don't just want to be in fellowship with God myself. I want to do my part so that they will have truth, so that they will have sound churches. You see, that phrase, keep the faith, means more than just obeying something. That word means to safeguard, to pass down something intact to those coming behind. Listen, I care about standing firm for the glory of God this morning, but I also care that my children have a church like that. And if I have grandchildren, I care that they have a church like that. And so the issue of my own compromise isn't just how it affects me and what I can see. It's what it does in the future, where it's heading. What's the trajectory? Leaven may spread slow, but it's going to spread. Now I want to begin by highlighting two important historic events in the past of American churches. Now, these are things that we've touched on, but these two events have everything to do with what we're talking about this morning, and I beg your patience and, and listening skills to remember that these things are very much watershed moments in the history, particularly of churches in the United States of America. All right, event number one, it was at the end of the 19th century, so the end of the 1800s. You had the rise of textual criticism, this tremendous attack on the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. You had men with totally corrupted theology trying to tamper with the Scriptures and reinterpret things. You had the rise of evolutionary teaching, you had attacks on the deity of Christ and the gospel itself, etc., etc. And liberalism and modernism were the two twin evils of the day. Now, basically, liberalism is a jettisoning of past tradition in favor of a looser approach. Modernism is trying to uh, basically bring together the tenets of Christianity with the so-called wisdom of modern man. Trying to make Christian a modern thing for modern minds to fit modern science. Now in response to that, there was a spiritual reviving that occurred in the early 1900s among those who took the Bible seriously. And there were many good men that rose up in defense of the doctrines of inspiration and preservation and the deity of Christ and the Gospels. And what that did is culminate in a series of 90 essays that were published between 1910 and 1915. They were edited by R.A. Torrey, but written by many men. And they were published in a multi-volume set of books that you can still find known as The Fundamentals. Now basically, that controversy marked the beginning of the modern so-called fundamentalist movement. Now maybe you've wondered, what in the world is a fundamentalist? Boy, has there been a lot of baggage attached to that. Frankly, there have been times where I have not wanted to be called that because of things I see going on. 
But whatever somebody thinks about that, let me give the historic definition of the word. In those days, a fundamentalist basically meant two important things. A fundamentalist was one who unapologetically stood for the historic fundamentals of the Christian faith. And, here's the other part, a person who was committed to a militant defense of the faith, just like Jude commanded. You remember his little epistle? He said, I wanted to be evangelistic. And he says, it was needful for me to write and to, and to exhort you that you must earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered for the saints. So a fundamentalist was somebody who stood for sound theology and was willing to separate from those who did not, willing to name names and expose teachers in order to maintain the purity of the gospel and the entire word of God itself. You know, in those days, the term fundamentalist and evangelical were nearly synonymous they were just emphasizing two things. Evangelical simply means we preach the new birth, that you must be born again. Fundamentalists emphasize more of the defense side. All right, now fast forward to event number two, to the year 1947, to one of the major watershed moments in American church history that sheds light on what is going on today. So much of the articles I read, so much of the departures I see, automatically I'm linking it back to what began in 1947. Let me illustrate why. Modernism and liberalism, of course, like Levin does, had spread and made inroads into the thinking of a huge swath of so-called conservative churches. And so, beginning to boil underneath the surface was this widespread yearning for a new kind of conservative Christian movement. Now keep in mind, these were the sons of the previous generation of fundamentalists. They did not, on one hand, want to be at least loudly associated with the heretics. They said, well, I don't want to be like Harry Emerson Fosdick and some of these other guys. At least loudly they wouldn't say it. Although time proved, by the way, many of them did want to associate with complete heretics. So on one hand, they didn't want to be publicly associated with modernism and liberalism, but on the other hand, they no longer wanted to be associated with the term fundamentalist. And there were basically two reasons for that. One, they were sick and tired of contending for the faith. Pointing out error and separating from it is difficult work. It's not glamorous. And trust me, it won't win you friends and help you influence all people. The other reason that they wanted to be more intellectually respected by the changing society around them. All that was needed was a catalyst. Now enter into the picture a very influential and relatively young, prominent congregationalist minister from Boston by the name of Harold Ockengay. And at the founding of Fuller Seminary in Pasadena in 1947, he gave what became a landmark speech that would forever change thousands of churches in the United States. Here's some of his words. Ockengay said, We repudiate the come-outist movement 
which brands all denominations as apostates. So he said, I reject the men that tell me I'm supposed to separate from the false teachers. I no longer am going to separate myself from that. It's interesting to point out here that the movers and shakers at the beginning of this were almost exclusively young men in their 20s and early 30s. Now, young men have zeal and vision. That's wonderful. But you ought to be very, very careful of a young man with zeal and vision who loudly hurls off the counsel of the stalwarts of the faith that have stood for decades before he was born defending the Word of God. I personally am skeptical, skeptical of any young man with that kind of attitude. He knows better. The walking gay says, we repudiate the come outist movement. Then he says this, we expect, it, we expect to be positive in our emphasis. Somebody says, what, what's wrong with being nice? Friends, th that's not the issue. Should our goal be positive or negative? Or should our goal be all of what God says? You see, what Gay was saying is, I reject the so-called negative parts of the Scripture, and I'm going positive only. And he says, I'm going to be positive except where error so exists that it's necessary for us to point it out in order to declare the truth. He says, oh, I'm not saying I'll never point out error. I'm just never going to point out error. And uh, that's what ended up happening. Now, looking back on that some years later, here's what Gay said. Now, pay attention to this. Gay said, neo-evangelicalism was born. He says, while, listen to this, while reaffirming the theological view of fundamentalism, he said, we agree on all the same doctrine as the fundamentalists. We're not changing anything. He said, this address repudiated its ecclesiology and social theory. In other words, we kept their doctrine, but their views of the church and the gospel's impact on society we threw out. He says there was a ringing call for a repudiation of separation and the summons to social involvement. So he found it resonated in many of the ministers across the country were tired of contending for the faith, were tired of separating from error, were tired of fighting the Lord's battles. I'm tired of obeying the whole counsel of God and turning my back like Paul told me to through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We just want to drop the sword and pick up a second trowel, man. Let's be positive. Here's what he says further. He said, We had no intention of launching a movement, but found that the emphasis attracted widespread support and exercised great influence. And here's what Gay says is the differences between neo-evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Here's what they are. Our repudiation of separation. We reject the doctrine of separation. Number two, it's determination to engage itself in the theological dialogue of the day. Now they were going to start dialoguing with heretics. It had a new emphasis, says Gay, upon the application of the gospel to the sociological, political, and economic areas of life. They began to embrace the social gospel, which basically is that our central mission as a church is to reform society and not tell men they must be born again and prepare for the world which is to come. Now, quoting Ockengay further, 
He says, neo-evangelicals emphasize, listen to this one, the restatement of Christian theology in accordance with the need of the times. The re-engagement in the theological debate. The recapture of denominational leadership. Okay, we're going to try to infiltrate and take these things back. How about this one? The re-examination of theological problems such as the antiquity of man, the universality of the flood, God's method of creation, and others. What in the world does it mean that we're going to commit ourselves to the re-examination of, of theological problems like the flood? Let me tell you who the flood was a theological problem for. The rebels who died. That's who it was a problem for. We need not have any problem with the Bible teaches on the flood because it happened just like God said. All right, so you get the point. Gay sounds this call and calls ministers from all over the country together and that's what launches effectively what was known as the New Evangelical Movement, which began by saying, we believe exactly the same things as the fundamentalists. We're just going to focus on dialogue. We refuse to separate. And uh, we're going to re-examine these theological problems to make society think that we're up to date. Now, where did this emphasis lead? Less than 20 years later, Gay had teamed up with a young evangelist named Billy Graham. By the 1960s, their movement had launched its own popular magazine, Christianity Today, which of course emphasizes that we want to present Christianity in terms that appear respectable to the world around us. Graham had unquestionably, unquestionably become the face of the new evangelical movement and was considered the foremost evangelist on earth by the new evangelical world. In 1966, Billy Graham convenes the World Congress on evangelization. Doesn't that sound nice? Let's evangelize the world. The problem is, he called together heretics and gospel deniers from all over the world and gathered them under one roof to join together with them for the purpose of reaching the world for Christ. So I wonder, how's this going? We all believe the same thing. 1966, joining with false gospel teachers for the purpose of evangelism that same year, 1966, Bob Jones Sr., was asked what he thought, and he said, I think that Billy Graham is doing more harm to the cause of Christ than any man alive. So much for all believing the same thing. Friends, listen, it's not popular, I know, but can I tell you something? Bob Jones was right. If the scriptures are your criteria, Bob Jones was correct. Now, he was wrong on some things particularly views of segregation, but he was correct on that. Now, what's going on today? Many of you have commented on the strangeness of entities like the emerging church, the lack of dogmatism about almost anything, the fact that the idea of preaching has become offensive because modern Christendom doesn't want authority. They don't want dogmatism. They don't want, thus saith the Lord. They want five steps to a better you. 
and everybody leave with a smile and a donut and a latte, don't we feel wonderful? You see, the unashamed worldliness, the postmodern thinking, the thousands of apostates that dominate the shelves in the bookstores and catalogs that sell their platinum albums by the millions and fill the TV and radio and internet with their teaching. You know what they are? They are the spiritual grandchildren of men like Harold Ockengay. What you see today is a direct result of Ockengay's stance and the new evangelicals that followed him who decided we will not reject false teaching, we will not turn our back on end times apostasy, and fast forward a few generations and here's what you have, what's going on in America today. Oh, by the way, I grieve when I say this. There are legions of young fundamentalists trying to do the same thing. Men I know personally from my school days. Men who are the sons of some of my instructors who sound just like Harold Ockengay. And they think they're so brilliant. But I can tell you where it's going to head. Same way it always heads. I wrestled with how long to spend on this particular topic of separation. We're going to end up spending a few weeks on it. And believe me, uh, that's still brief compared to what could be covered. But let me say at the outset why that is. Not because I like it, not because it's fun. Here's why. All that has been said on the subject of apostasy is of no long-term use if we do not maintain the separation that the Bible commands. I mean, imagine an ancient city you're walking through. It's large and it's beautiful and it's educated and it's wealthy. And you walk its streets and the architecture is stunning, and the gardens and the fountains defy description. And all the people that you meet seem happy and fulfilled and kind and generous. You examine the wall surrounding the city, and you find the wall is tall and broad and impenetrable. You look at that wall and say, nobody could ever get through that. But as you continue to walk, you find that this city only seems to be missing one thing. And that is a gate with a watchman next to it. I wonder, with a city like that, sooner or later, what is guaranteed to happen? The enemies are coming in. And this sobering thing, a church, now no church perfectly meets this criteria, but a church hypothetically could be flawless in its written doctrinal statement. It could be vibrant in worship, mature in disposition, zealous in evangelism and discipleship, fervent in charity, careful and distinct in their standards. Yet if they do not practice ongoing separation, it's only a matter of time that leaven will come in that door and it will begin to eat like gangrene. The new evangelical movement first agreed to leave the gate unlocked. 
The next generation left it cracked open. The next generation left it wide open. This current generation has removed the gate and put a welcome sign in its place. No watchman at all. Now what's wrong with a welcome sign? Well, using our analogy, that would be fine in a world where there's no deceivers and no silver-tongued apostates and no wolves dressed like sheep and no tares among the wheat and no roaring lions seeking whom he may devour. But in this world, you'd better have a gate and some watchmen. Now why must we as a church and an individual Christian practice separation? Why? I'm going to give three reasons, and these are going to be essentially the themes of the three messages. Reason number one is because God has exalted himself as the preeminent pattern for separation. Reason number two, because the entire word of God, cover to cover, by way of examples, both positive and negative, by way of oft-repeated principles, and by way of direct commands, the Bible repeatedly demands that God's people practice separation from error. Thirdly, because the arguments leveled against separation when examined carefully are generally flimsy, based on human reasoning and misinterpreted passages, and they have proven historically time and again to produce apostasy every single place they've gone. You know one of the things that amazes me? It is not hard to find historical examples of what I just said. It's happened over and over and over and over and over for 2,000 years of church history. All right, reason number one. Turn with me to Genesis 1, if you would. We're just going to mention something in passing there. Genesis 1. <clears throat> I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that the Almighty God is a separatist. I doubt I'll ever write a book on this topic, but if I did, here's what I'd like to call it. From Park Street to the Shack, 70 years of evangelical compromise. Park Street was the prominent church pastored by Gay, And of course, the Shack is the widely popular apostate new theology that has captured the minds of fake Christians all over the world. You see, the shack presents God as both male and female. It presents God as equally valuing everybody's opinion on religious matters. It presents God as not judging sin or condemning sinners. It presents God as treating all religions as valid so long as the adherents are sincere. In other words, the God of the shack is a non-separatist. God, which should be no surprise given where it's come from. Now, friends, keep in mind 
Romans 1 brings this out as well as other places. Man's constant tendency in his own fallen nature is to constantly try to fashion God into his own fallen image. Now Genesis 1, verse 3, let me read them to you. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now I know that this is directly speaking of the creation of physical light in the universe. But what this also does is give us an idea of a character trait of God first mentioned that carries through all of Scripture. I find it interesting to notice in those verses he calls the light good, but he never says that about the darkness. And then he divides the light from the darkness. May I say that God still divides light from the darkness. You, if you belong to Christ, are called a child of the light. He tells you, walk as children of light. Walk as those that are born again. Walk as those that are children of God. It was God who separated his viewpoint from anybody else when he had written, let God be true and every man a liar. It was God who separated one particular nation on the face of the earth to be his kingdom of priests and his mouthpiece, the nation Israel, and commanded them to be distinct from all other nations. It was God who separated the tabernacle from all other places as the only legitimate location to offer sacrifice to him. It was God who separated the proper lambs for sacrifice and told which should be excluded. It was God who chose Jerusalem and separated it from all other cities on earth as the place His temple would reside. And when the Lamb of God finally arrived in due time, it was God's prophet who pointed at Him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Meaning He was distinct from every other who claimed to be a Messiah either before or after. It was God who exalted that name above every other name. And we see in Acts 4.12 as well as other places. How many names are there by which man can receive forgiveness of sins? One. One. Galatians 1.8 and 9. See, Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Ghost that all other Gospels. By the way, do you know errant Gospels often use words like Jesus, God, faith, grace, love, and baptism? What's the most deceptive kind of counterfeit? One that comes very close to the real. And Paul is saying, I don't care what terminology they use. Any Gospel other than the biblical Jesus Christ being slaughtered for the sins of the world and mankind being justified by faith apart from works is cursed of God. God separated the gospel message from any other message out there as the singular way to save the souls of mankind. Revelation 20, we see that God will separate Himself from every person who does not believe in Jesus Christ for all 
eternity. I mean, think for a minute of the things that won't be in the new heaven and earth. Revelation gives us quite a list. Guess what? They'll be in hell. John says there'll be no more sea. What's the eternal state of torture called? Lake fire. It's a vast turbulent sea. Rolling waves of fire. John says there'll be no more tears or sorrow or pain or darkness or memory of the former things, at least to a point. Somebody in the lake of fire will have all of those things. Do you know that God will separate himself from a wide swath of people that are even religious? You can read about it at the end of Matthew 7. Many, the Lord says, will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Oh, and they'll present all the terrific things they did for him. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. It is so critical to understand when talking about this. The grounds of biblical separation that must be exercised. The ground of this is not men's opinion. It's not written creeds. It's not how we feel about things or how society thinks about us. Here's what it is. It is God's holiness that demands separation to be exercised by His people in every age. I mean, what is God's attitude towards sin? I don't think I need to argue the point. As anybody here who remotely believes the Scriptures is not going to question the complete divine abhorrence of evil. The fact that God hates sin. It says in Psalm 45.7, a prophecy of Christ, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. And we find in other places that that hatred extends to error and to false teaching. In fact, in Revelation 2, the doctrine, the teaching of this group called the Nicolaitans, who, by the way, were teachers in local churches founded by apostles. And the Lord Jesus' comment about their teaching was that He hates it. And He commended the church at Ephesus for hating it as well. Not hating people, but hating the error. The idea that God hates is repulsive to many in this postmodern age because they're ignorant of what biblical love is as well. Friends, I tell you this morning, a God that cannot hate, cannot love. A God that doesn't hate iniquity, cannot love righteousness. You sit here this morning and you say, I love my child. Let me ask you a question. If you love your child, do you not then hate that which would destroy and pervert and maim and torture and kill them? Yes, you do. And if you don't hate those things, you don't love your child. Does not the God of all creation who loves His people also hate that which would eat them from the inside out and rot their spiritual guts like gangrene? You bet he does. You know, hate is a strong word in the Scriptures. 
It means an intense aversion or active hostility that's expressed in a settled opposition to a person or thing. That's why Psalm 711 says God is angry with the wicked every day. God's settled disposition towards Christ rejectors is anger on a daily basis. Now, God himself cannot commit sin. Paul is shocked at the proposition in Romans 9.14. That's one of his many meganoitas when he asks these hypothetical questions. But he asks, there's this debate going on of God's sovereignty, His election, and man's free will. And Paul raises the question, is there unrighteousness with God? He says, God forbid. No way. Let it not be. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, All his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. God has no propensity to sin. He cannot sin. He cannot be tempted with evil, says James. The temptation of Christ in Matthew 4 was not to see if he would sin. It was to prove that he could not sin. And a holy God can do no less than demand holiness from all moral beings. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look. The idea is with favor or pleasure. Thou canst not look on iniquity. God by nature cannot overlook, wink at, condone, or minimize sin because it would be against who He is. And he, he cannot tolerate the sins of men without a just reaction of His holiness eventually because sin must be punished. Friends, it's God's holiness that shows man his need for a Savior. I ask you, what is the standard by which man is compared if he's going to know anything about conviction of sin? Somebody may rightly say, I'm a pretty good guy when it comes to the world's standards. I've known people who reject Christ that, as far as the world goes, I'd say, man, they're good people. Now, what is a verse like Romans 3.23, which most of you have had memorized for decades, for all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. Because the standard is God's holiness. Somebody stands up and says, I'm a good guy. I'll go to heaven based on what I've done. The biblical answer is fine. You better be as holy and righteous and flawless as God Himself or you're doomed. And what about the standard for God's own people? Does the Lord say, just, just try hard? Does Peter command us, be positive for I am positive? No, but I'll tell you what he does say. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 John 2, 1, John says, My little children, these things I write unto you, not that you sin less, but that you sin not. Now, I'm not teaching some kind of perfectionism, but I'm saying the goal of a Christian is not sinning against God as you walk in fellowship with Him. Believers are not to be satisfied with a life in carnality making excuse for evil. And part of that is God expects His people to be actively opposed to unholiness. 
Many in history have tried to take the sad position. They sound like they're on the moral high road. Oh, I'm just above the fray. I'm not going to stoop to deal with controversy. Oh, isn't that nice? Biblically, to be holy involves a continued controversy with the forces of evil. There is no holiness without that. Paul says in Ephesians, no fellowship, he says, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but then he says, rather reprove them, combat it, and call it what it is. Amos 5.15, the Jews are wondering, what do we do about our sad condition? One of the things the Lord says is, hate the evil, love the good, and establish judgment at the gate. <laughs> hate that which is against the character of God, love that which is in accordance, and give a clear enunciation of what the truth is. Sounds like a pretty good idea. The false teachers in Titus 1 were to be sharply rebuked. See, the concept of contending for the faith that Jude talks about and carries all over the New Testament involves both a clear repudiation of error and a clear enunciation of truth. Both of those have to happen. In the Word of God, we were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school. Let me give you the answer to that question I asked. In the Scriptures, holiness is clearly presented as God's fundamental or governing attribute. In other words, holiness is presented in a manner that all of His perfections are governed by His holiness. I'm going to ask you, which of His attributes is presented in a threefold manner? I know the Scriptures say God is love, but you know what they don't say? God is love, love, love. But here's what they do say. God is holy, holy, holy. It emphasizes his purity, his otherness, his distinctness, the fact that he's set apart from all that defiles. The supremacy of his holiness is seen in that angelic worship I just mentioned in Isaiah 6. Isaiah had a rough time when King Uzziah died. He looked up to him. And here he is presumably lamenting that fact that he's dead. And he says in that same year, oh, he saw another king. I saw also the Lord, he said, high and lifted up, sitting upon his throne, and his train filled the temple. Now the ancient kings, the train of their robe, the longer it was, the more majestic that king was. And Isaiah sees a vision of the throne of God, and he says that train was so long it filled the entirety of the temple and went out the door. You talk about majesty. And above him is the seraphims, and with two of their wings they're covering their face, and with two they're covering their feet, and what are they crying? Positive, tolerance, smiley faces. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The supremacy of the holiness of God is seen in the fact that in both testaments, it's what man is commanded to possess. 
both Leviticus and then quoted in 1 Peter, be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is the attribute by which God swears. Psalm 89, 35, he says, Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. God has no greater attribute by which he can pledge his absolute faithfulness. You know what else holiness is? It's the attribute of God that's basic to man's redemption. Why must the sinner die? Because a holy God has been infinitely offended. Justice and righteousness are outward manifestations of intrinsic holiness. God is just and righteous because He is holy. What happened on that cross that day at Calvary? The holiness of God was vindicated. God couldn't wave the magic wand because of His holy character and say, Oh, you feel bad enough. Oh, you cried crocodile tears. What you did wasn't that bad. Let me ask you a question. Why did God have to become man and take sin upon Himself and go to that cross and have God the Father turn His back and separate from Him? And He cries out, Why hast thou forsaken me? Why did that have to happen? One reason. Because God is holy. And His holiness had to be vindicated. And the only way you can be saved is because a righteous God gave a righteous, sinless sacrifice. And you're not saved because you're sorry. And you're not saved because of how bad you feel. You're saved because Jesus said, It is finished. The holiness of God was exalted. And the love of God was displayed on that cross. Oh, Sharnock, if you ever want some reading that will challenge your mind, pick up Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan writer, The Existence and Attributes of God. Wow. <laughs> One of the things he said, he, speaking of God's holiness, he said, This attribute hath an excellency above all his other perfections. Why am I emphasizing that here? Here's why. An understanding of biblical separation involves an understanding and emphasis on God's holiness. That is ultimately why separation is done. But on the other hand, the compromisers and the whole ecumenical movement, almost without exception, will emphasize love as God's governing attribute. And here's how it happens. They misdefine love as humanistic, emotional, wickedly tolerant, and passive. And then they attach their definition of love to God. And then they cling to, oh, God is love. And then they make love the governing attribute and they bend God's holiness and righteousness and justice to match their twisted definition of love. How does a guy like Rob Bell have thousands of followers and claim to be a Christian author and write something like Love Wins, which teaches nobody will go to hell in the end because God is so loving. Oh, but Mr. Bell, what do you do? 
<laughs> with the fact that Jesus taught on hell twice as much as heaven? Well, I can answer that for you. God's mystifying love reigns supreme. And his holiness and justice and righteousness must bow before it. And that opens the way for all manner of pragmatism and compromise. That's why at these mega conferences, <laughs> you will hear a tremendous amount about love, tolerance, unity. Remember, Bible unity is not everybody agreeing with each other. Bible unity is people agreeing with God. But you'll hear those words, love, tolerance, and unity, over and over and over again. But you know what you'll hear almost nothing about? Holiness, righteousness, and judgment. Most of you have a strong concordance. Let me read you the words of Augustus Hopkins Strong. Now keep in mind, this was written over a hundred years ago, before anybody knew what a new evangelical was. Here's what Strong said, talking about God's holiness. He said, That which lays down the norm or standard for love must be the superior of love. When we forget that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne, like it says in Psalm 97, we lose one of the chief landmarks of Christian doctrine and involve ourselves in a mist of error. Did you catch that statement? Strong said over a hundred years ago, when you forget holiness is God's governing attribute and you start to get twisted up in your theology proper, you begin walking in a fog of total confusion. Unbelievably prophetic words. Now turn with me if you would to Revelation 1 and we'll be done. Do you know what the greatest example, we've already touched on it, what's the greatest biblical example of love governed by holiness? It's Calvary. God so loved the world. Does God love sinners? You bet. But friends, God's love had to be carried out in a way that vindicated His holy character. Now, Revelation 1, most of you know the backdrop. John turns and here the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state appears to him in verses 14 to 17. Now, keep in mind, John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. They had a very close relationship in the days of the Lord's earthly ministry. But I want to ask you a question. In these verses we read, the Lord Jesus Christ loves His churches. In fact, He says in these passages, as many as I love, what do I do? I rebuke and chasten. But in this appearance of Christ, what comes to mind in this description? Verse 14, His head and His hairs were white like wool as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, which attribute of God is preeminent in that description? It's holiness. See, Jesus is appearing as the rightful judge of his churches. A holy God, a holy head of the churches which, by the way, isn't at the Vatican. Jesus is the head of the churches. A holy head of the church demands holy congregations. And what you see in the next two chapters is seven local congregations that are examined in light of the Holy One. They're commended for hating false doctrine. They're rebuked for allowing it to remain. They're warned that His holy nature wanted to vomit because of their lukewarmness at Laodicea. And fellowship with Him was conditioned on repentance. Repentance. You know, there's a huge parallel between our day and that of Jeremiah. There were all kinds of prophets in Jeremiah's day. Lots of phonies. Jeremiah had to contend with them. And he said that they were broken cisterns that can hold no water. <laughs> he said that they were crying peace when there was no peace. They were refusing to get away from error. They were saying to the apostate masses, everything's fine. And Jeremiah was saying, everything's not fine. Chapter 23 and verse 9 is precious to me. I remember it being emblazoned in my mind many, many years ago when I first started fighting some of these battles. Did Jeremiah like the contention? <laughs> There's a reason he was called the weeping prophet. But here's what he says in Jeremiah 23, 9. He says, Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of the Lord and because of the words of His holiness. Jeremiah's grasp of the holiness of God made him shake and quiver and rack with turmoil when he saw the proliferation of charlatans exploding around him. And notice it was the words of God's holiness that caused him to speak. Why must we practice biblical separation? Because even a basic understanding of the holiness of God demands it. God is a separatist. He has no fellowship with evil or compromise or error. 
And if you and I are going to walk in fellowship with Him and expect His blessing and His commendation, we had better have an ongoing controversy with evil and false teaching. Because to love righteousness is to hate iniquity. And to really love the souls of men and to really love the churches of Christ is to hate that which corrupts and destroys them. And we've covered a lot this morning. Let me ask a very basic question. I've been talking to save people. I wonder if everybody in this room can say with confidence, I know that my sins are forgiven. And then I wonder if you can answer the question with confidence, how do you know that? You see, there's only one right answer to that question. Let's say we took a survey of America. What kind of answers would you get from this country where 80% of people say they're Christian? How do you know your sins are forgiven? I was baptized as a baby, wrong answer. My parents went to church, wrong answer. I was baptized as an adult, wrong answer. I believe that Jesus lived, wrong answer. I try to be a good person, wrong answer. I go to church every Sunday, wrong answer. I go to church on Easter, wrong answer. I gave money to a church, wrong answer. What one message has God separated from any other? Here's what it is. You are a defiled, perverse rebel against the God of heaven. You are a sinner by birth and by choice. It's not anyone else's fault, it's yours. Whatever mankind thinks of you, you have infinitely offended a holy God, and right now His wrath is hanging over your head like a dripping sword. And if you don't repent, if you don't stop trusting yourself, if you don't stop looking to you and your sincerity to fix your problems, if you don't reach out and take Christ as your Savior, God who died for you on that cross and took all the penalty for your sin, if you don't take Him as Savior and turn your back on every false gospel, you will be separated from God forever. But there's glorious news, isn't there? God delights to save sinners. And the reason this world is here because, is because God is merciful. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you don't know that you're saved, then I challenge you to go to God and deal with that. I can help. I don't have to be there. I'd gladly be like a signpost and point in the direction. But I don't save you. This church doesn't save you. The baptismal doesn't save you. Neither does this. By the way, this isn't an altar. This is a stair step at the front of a church building. Coming here won't save you. You have to go to Christ and believe in Him. Believe the record that God gave of His Son and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to understand Your glorious holiness. I understand we will be learning about that forever. Tragically, even sinners in hell will be learning about your holiness forever. They'll be learning about how terribly they transgressed it. Oh, 
Father, I pray you'd help us to have a gracious spirit in these strange times. Help us not to be wrongfully and arrogantly critical. Help us not to have the cursed mindset that we're better than anybody. We're not. We're dust. We're dirt. But Father, we do want to obey your word. Father, you know, even as I say the things I'm saying, I don't like controversy. I would much rather not deal with error. I would much rather not contend for the faith in and of myself. I think there's many here that are like that. But Father, help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to get our armor on and fight the battles for our God and King while you've called us to do it on this short time on earth. Thank you for telling us not just the, the light and bright things and positive things, but thank you for telling us the dark and difficult things as well. Help us to have ears to hear, have our eyes open, to have the gate against error shut. In Jesus' name, amen.